0: TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt, and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft, and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com, designed for work.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
0: We're getting close to the premiere of season four of our show, but today I've got another conversation for you from our Taken for Granted series of unscripted interviews about rethinking assumptions. This year and last, many of us have been forced to communicate with our closest colleagues and friends from a distance. And that skill is not uniquely human.
2: This is the distance greeting, and that simply means this is me, this is Jane.
0: Yep, this is Jane Goodall, legendary ethologist, an expert on primate behavior. Jane greeted us from her home in the UK over Zoom. It's an unnatural habitat for a person who usually spends most of her time outdoors. More than 60 years ago, Jane started her career studying chimpanzees in Tanzania, along with anthropologist Louis Leakey. She famously immersed herself with wild chimps and made groundbreaking discoveries about how primates behave and communicate. It turns out that we have a lot more in common with apes than we realize. And by observing their actions and interactions, I think we can learn a lot about leadership, status, and culture among humans. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Taken For Granted, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. My job is to think again about how we work, lead, and live. So I guess the, the place to start is, can you tell me a little bit about where you are right now and what it's like to be working from home instead of in the wild?
2: Well, first of all, I was very lucky to be caught and grounded in my home. Um, this is the house where I grew up, although this is the longest I've been here in one place since the age of, well, 18, I think. Wow. You know, here I have all my work, all my books behind me. If you could see, there's the books I read as a child outside the window are the trees that I climbed when I was a child. And you asked about uh, how I was coping and what it was like working from home. Well, to be honest, I've never worked so hard in my life as in the last four months. I mean, it's just been nonstop video messaging.
0: Do you do virtual calls with chimps as well?
2: I don't speak to the chimps, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wasn't sure. so uh, it's, it's really interesting that you've, you've never worked this hard before. Does that mean you're, you're adapting well to remote work and, and being sort of in one place in an office?
2: Well, it's not an office. It's up in my room. It's a little eerie, and it's very small. And so my, my little studio is sitting on a very hard stool. But, yeah, I'm happy. What, what I miss, I mean, I was traveling 300 days a year around the world, and you would think that was harder work, and it surely was sometimes I got exhausted. But in between, there was, you know, meeting really, really good friends and relaxing with them and laughing and telling stories, and then giving lectures to rooms filled with up to 15,000 people. You get a buzz from it. So even if you start off feeling totally exhausted there's some energy that comes and uh, whereas now I'm having to give talks gazing at a little tiny green light on the top of my laptop and it's, it's it's a big effort to do it well but I won't won't do it unless I do do it well so
0: well, you you do it beautifully. And Jane, I can very much relate to that experience. I've done more virtual talks in the last four months than I think in the rest of my life combined. I want to ask you more questions about your remote work life, but I also want to make sure we we get a bunch of commentary and, and insight on on primates. So I've been interested in what primates can teach us about leadership and how we all work together. And so I guess the place I'd love to start on that is If you could just describe some of your key insights and observations around when you see primates collaborate, uh, what does that teach you about how humans work?
2: Well, you know, the reason um, Dr. Leakey sent me off to study chimpanzees in the first place is because uh, he spent his life searching for the fossilized remains of Stone Age humans. And uh, you can tell an awful lot from a fossil, but behavior doesn't fossilize. So Leakey was actually ahead of his time in thinking that way back when there was a common ancestor, ape-like, human-like, and uh, maybe that behavior has been brought with us through our separate evolutionary pathways. So it gave him a better feeling for how early humans might have behaved. That's why he sent me. Anyhow, eventually I began to realize how like us they are in so many ways their nonverbal communication, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another on the back. Uh, we find that the males, and this was obvious pretty early on to me, they have this very rigid dominance hierarchy. But it's always changing as young ones start moving up the hierarchy, starting at the bottom when they're in late adolescence. And the interesting thing is they have different methods of climbing the ladder. And when you consider those who've made it to the top, the alpha males, you know, there are some who just use physical strength and they're aggressive and slightly brutal and do a lot of attacking they don't last as long as those that use their intelligence and they use that intelligence in different ways. So one was Mike and he was very low ranking in a, in a group of 11 adult males. He was right down near the bottom, but he just had this motivation to climb the ladder and some, some males do and some males don't. There's a big difference there. Anyhow, my, At that time, you know, it was feeding the bananas. It was the very early days, 1964. And we lit the camp at night with little paraffin lamps, um, kerosene lamps, you'd call them, I think. Well, Mike took this chance experience with a can and he developed it. So in the end, he learned to keep three cans ahead of him. And would charge towards males who were his superiors at the time. And it was a a scary thing to have three cans hurtling towards you, making this (laughs) awful noise. So they got out of the way. And then, you know, he would sit exhausted and still with his hair bristling. And they'd come and groom him. And as far as we know, there wasn't one single serious fight because when they fight, they tend to pull each other's hair out and there are wounds. But Mike had neither patches of hair nor wounds. And he reigned six years. And then you ask about leadership. Well, Mike became alpha male. But being an alpha doesn't make you a leader. It makes you the boss. And others will be submissive to you and greet you with submissive gestures. But then other males are leaders. They're leaders because they're much more gentle. And other chimps like to follow them and choose to follow them.
0: Oh, this is so fascinating. I I have so many questions for you. I'm not even sure where to start. (laughs) I guess I'll... I'll start at the question of of who becomes a leader versus who's an effective leader. So one of the things we find over and over again in my world of organizational psychology is that the individuals that we elevate to leadership roles are often the most narcissistic, selfish takers because they show dominance and strength. But that ultimately, when we look at who leads well and and both inspires people and guides a group toward achieving a common goal most productively, um, it tends much more to be the humble, other-oriented, generous givers uh, who are willing to put the team or the organization above themselves. And it, it seems like you see a similar dynamic with chimps.
2: Yes, and of course, chimps don't have leadership in quite the way of what you're studying in humans because I guess that you're studying leaders in politics or business or both. Exactly. Yes, and for chimpanzees, you know, it's the strive for some of the males is the alpha position. They want to dominate the others. And of course, that's what we see in some politicians, right? We, In fact, when I see two chimpanzee males bristling, swaggering upright, furious scowl on their face, using intimidation tactics because it's a waste of time to fight, you might get hurt. So mostly it's intimidation. And it reminds me just exactly of some human male politicians. They do the same. (laughs)
0: It's so true. Why do you say human male politicians?
2: Well, I don't think human female politicians use the same tactics. At least I haven't seen them. I mean, I'm thinking of the last election, and I'm thinking of when Hillary Clinton was talking and Donald Trump was kind of looming. Do you remember how he used to loom behind her? Yes. Threatening, swaggering way. That was so chimpanzee-like.
0: It's so interesting to think about this. I guess you know one of the things that that I've long been curious about are when we see those kinds of differences, how much are they driven by social roles versus you know more evolutionary and biologically rooted forces? Where do you come down on that?
2: Well, I think it's mostly I I don't know. I mean, we do know now there's chimpanzee culture. Different chimpanzee communities have slightly different ways of doing things. But that's mostly we see it in things like tool using, and sometimes using a gesture that's common to both, but in a slightly different context. Um, how it compares precisely with what you're talking about is it, it 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 doesn't really it doesn't quite gel somehow. What do you what do you think? I mean, okay, you have a male. And he's motivated to climb the social ladder. Why? He wants to get to the top. He wants. Sometimes you feel honestly it's because he really enjoys the submissive behavior of others. And that I think we can compare with some human leadership. Would you agree with that?
0: Oh, it's hard to disagree with that one. I yes, I would I would agree, especially when we start to see those differences vary from one culture to another. Uh, I start to believe that there's there's a lot to be learned from studying the way that cultures are created, uh, yeah. which which I'd, I'd be very curious to hear your take on because you mentioned that chimpanzees have cultures. Um, they lack a lot of the tools we normally use to build cultures, right? they can't They can't tell stories the same way that humans do. Um, certainly, language capabilities are more limited. H- how do chimpanzees build cultures?
2: Through uh, observation, imitation, and practice. And that is one definition of human culture, behavior passed from one generation to the next through observation. And that, it's demonstrated so clearly. You, you you watch the development of an infant. For example, you see the young ones watching, and at first they don't even try. Then they use an inappropriate tool. Then they use, I mean, one one little infant quite determined that she was going to really try and do what her mum was doing, having watched her mum. And she she got this thick little stick, which was much too thick, but she pushed and pushed, and it went down into the hole all right, but she couldn't get it out, and it was just, you know, so funny. Um, But gradually, by the time they're about four, especially the females, they've got it down to to a fine art. The males, they have a different role in that society. They're the ones who patrol the territory. They're the ones who got to be alert for individuals from another community, invading their territory. So there's quite a big difference in male and female characteristics. And that's the same with humans. And this is what bothers me um, as we you know, move into the era of feminism, is that the females who first succeeded in breaking into male business and politics, for example, did so by trying to become more male than the males. They use the same tactics, whereas what we need in our society is the two different—the male and the female—who who do have different ways of doing things. We need both.
0: Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, the some of the research on queen bees has suggested that that's much more of a response to inequality than a cause of inequality. Um, so that, you know, it's it's not that, that women leaders necessarily want to operate this way, um, but they feel like they have to do it in order to get and then maintain their position. Um, I, I wondered if there's a, there is a parallel in chimp society there as well.
2: I don't think so. I mean, they, you know, they don't sort of, as far as I can understand, they don't think things through like that. They just do what their nature tells them to do and a female behaves like a like a female we had one female who was sterile she never produced an infant and she behaved much more like a male and yet at the same time she had female characteristics and she adopted a whole lot of motherless orphans so they they seem to behave more in tune with Like you say, they can't talk, they don't speak, they don't discuss. So they just behave the way they feel, which is why I always say, you know, only humans can be really evil. Chimps can be brutal and aggressive and kill and have a kind of war, but they are not capable of sitting down in cold blood and planning to torture an individual who's not even present. Wow. That's what I consider evil.
0: That's such a powerful statement. This touches on a a theme that you mentioned earlier, and it's another thread that I wanted to pull, which is about this distinction between dominance and respect or prestige. So you you mentioned that a lot of chimps are, are able to gain alpha status and essentially elicit submissiveness. Uh, but they're they're not necessarily admired or, or willingly followed. Does that mean that the dominant alpha males actually lose their status faster? Whereas the the ones that either use their intelligence or other strategies are more likely to sustain the respect of a of a group?
2: They are uh, aggressive ones last less long, usually. I won't say always, but but you I mean the most aggressive one we've ever had. Humphrey. He only lasted one and a half years.
0: I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your take on the the mechanisms behind this pattern. Uh, so, if the if the really aggressive chimps don't last as long, how do you explain that? What do you think is driving it?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's just you know they all have different personalities, and I suppose the aggressive ones don't necessarily use their brains. And maybe if you use your intelligence to get to the top you can use your intelligence to stay up there
0: that tracks with one of the the mechanisms that i was thinking about uh, which is that you know it, when studying humans i've seen pretty consistently that the the dominance path to the top is is often the shortest but also the shortest lived uh, because if if that's the strategy that's uh, that's going to get people there then you only last until there's another more dominant individual who's going to overpower you Yes, uh, and it, it, clever,
2: clever, a clever coalition. I mean, coalitions play a very major part in chimp society. Really important part.
0: Well, that that I, I think that's another piece of the puzzle that I was wondering about. Is it, it seems that if you know, if dominance is the strategy to gain power or status, then uh, you're you're essentially creating a culture in which everybody's position is is determined by strength. And so the moment that a, a few individuals would get together and and outsmart the strongest one, uh, they have a coalition that's that's able to overpower. How does that happen? How do, the, how do chimps coordinate that kind of coalition building? Well,
2: there's two kinds of coalition. There's one that might be between, um, interestingly, either between brothers, and they can be supporting each other for a very long time, or between a male who was dominant and the one who's taken over his dominance and that's what i found absolutely fascinating so okay one male takes over the dominant role through aggression he fights and having taken over and it's very clear he's now the top and the previous alpha is very submissive every time he sees him he gives a submissive pant grunt and reaches out to touch but the new alpha continues to beat him up. And he beats him up really savagely, um, even though the other one is giving all the right submissive responses. And when he's behaved that way for about, let's say a month or so, then suddenly this, of course the previous alpha is now very, very, very nervous and submissive. And then the alpha changes completely He's always grooming him. He's really nice to him. He never attacks him. He rushes in to protect him if another male challenges him. And because of that, these two then become so strong an alliance that nothing breaks it. And I find this absolutely fascinating. Wow. Yeah. And then, and then the other kind of alliance is a temporary one. So. Two males are wanting, perhaps, I don't know, to take bananas from a higher-ranking one. And neither of them on their own could do it. And so they gang up. But that's a temporary alliance. And I guess I'm, I'm trying to visualize how this happens. Uh, you know, when, when chimps get together
0: and form an alliance, whether it's it's temporary or more lasting, is there a—this <laughs> is, this is going to be a strange question, but it'll give you a sense of how I, I think—is uh, there is there a workplace analog so, you know, do, do chimps coordinate like they're working on an assembly line? Does it look more like a farm? Do you see them in an office with cubicles? Or am I stretching, <laughs> stretching this parallel too far?
2: Stretching it way too far. <laughs> it's a thing of the moment. You want to attack that guy over there. You can't defeat him on your own. You look around. You see another male who, who normally you don't have much time with. And you run over to him and you touch him and you look at the... It's the higher ranking one. And the other male thinks, oh, this is an opportunity to get the better of him. And so the two of them uh, charge or attack together.
0: So I think that speaks to some really interesting questions about communication and, and coordination. Um, you know, certainly since Darwin wrote about facial expressions, uh, we've been curious about the universality versus specificity of of different kinds of facial signals of emotion. Um, this, is, this has been an incredibly heated debate in psychology over the last few years. Which facial expressions of emotion do you think are most universal from your studies of chimps? And which ones seem to be idiosyncratic to either individuals or to groups or cultures?
2: Well, you know, the facial expression that goes with um, begging, pouting the lips, facial expression that goes with fear, drawing the lips right back and having the mouth wide open. The facial expression that shows laughter and play. I think we find them in chimps of, of all different groups that have been studied and in captive chimps as well for the most part. And then
0: what about, uh, what about body language? What do we learn about the way that, that chimps communicate through the, the gestures they make? I'm curious about other human analogs and parallels there.
2: Well, it's great. I mean, if you watch chimpanzees communicating non-verbally, you more or less know exactly what they're doing because we do the same. I mean, we, we really do. We shake fists. We, uh, if you don't like something, you make that flapping flapping movement you reach out and beg you threaten with your fist raised you swagger from foot to foot if you want to impress
0: one thing that I, I was really interested in is when you talk about how the alpha males often lose their position or they they don't live as long in some cases um i've seen versions of that in business and in political life and i feel like the the myth of the alpha male is very per- pervasive and persistent in societies around the world, uh, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily want to operate that way. Intimidation or dominance is not their default. Uh, it's not perfectly aligned with their value system, but they look up the hierarchy and they see very influential, very visible role models doing it, and they think they have to follow suit. And I guess you've you spent so many years interacting with world leaders. Um, I'm interested in what you think it's going to take to break the myth of the alpha.
2: Probably. More women coming in and more women using their feminine qualities rather than trying to ape the male qualities of the existing system.
0: And which, quote-unquote, feminine qualities do you think are most
2: important in leadership? It's very important to be understanding, to be intuitive, uh, to be patient, and to be compassionate. And is your hope that we continue
0: seeing those as feminine qualities, or that we dismantle these stereotypes at the at the ground level and say actually these are leadership qualities?
2: I don't know. I've never thought about that, so I couldn't I couldn't possibly answer it. But what I love is um, he was one of the chiefs of a Latin American indigenous tribe, and I forget which country. But um, he said to me. He said, you know, Jane, we consider our tribe as like an eagle. And on this eagle, one wing is male and the other wing is female. And only when the two wings are equal will our tribe fly true.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. It does make me wonder about something you just mentioned, which is patience. Uh, you, you mentioned that's something we need more in leadership. Uh, you also mentioned that it's something that that your work has required over the years and there are these legendary stories about you uh, being five years old, waiting, just waiting around for chickens to lay eggs. And then, is that real?
2: Stuffy hen house for four and a half hours. And you just sat there? Yeah. First, I followed a hen because I wanted to know where the hole was, where the egg came out. And nobody told me. So I remember seeing this brown hen going into one of these hen houses. And crawling after her, which was a big mistake, and squawks, I presume, fear. She flew out past me. I can still feel her wing on my face. It was a bit scary. Um, And I must have thought in that little four-and-a-half-year-old mind, well, no hen will lay an egg here. This is a scary place. So I went into an empty hen house and waited and saw the egg come out. And, you see, I had this enormous benefit when I was a child of my mother she was so supportive, so instead of getting angry at me, how dare you go off without telling us, don't you do it again? They'd called the police by then. Um, she sat down the wonderful story of how a hen laid an egg. And when I announced age 10 that I was going to go to Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them, everybody laughed at me because I was a girl and war was raging and, and Africa was far away and we had basically no money. But mom said, if you really want to do something like this, you're going kind to of have to work awfully hard, take advantage of every opportunity, and then maybe if you don't give up, you'll find a way. That's what I've told young people all around the world, and so many have come up to me or written to me and said, Jane, I want to thank you because you taught me that because you did it, I can do it too.
0: That's oh, that's It's so moving to hear. and it's clear you not only found a way right you cleared the path for so many others to follow in your footsteps do you have techniques or strategies to maintain your patience and delay gratifications
2: no i never thought of it i mean i just born that way you know i was obviously born patient wasn't i and i could sit for hours until a bird got got um, used to me and then I could watch her laying her eggs and watch the parents feed the babies and watch the babies fly away and that took hours of just sitting I think that to be a good mother which is woman's role throughout evolution really uh, going way back um, you have to be patient you can't be a good mother if you're not patient I don't think
0: this, this quality we've been talking about, being patient and obstinate and resilient, I imagine that came in handy early in your career when people are telling you, you can't do this work without a doctorate, uh, and a woman can't do this work anyway. Could you talk to me a little bit about how you dealt with the criticism from closed-minded men?
2: Well, you know, honestly, people always say that, but I didn't have that kind of criticism any more, I think, than if I'd been a male. I was criticized for giving the chimpanzees names. But I guess that criticism would have come even if I'd been a, a male student, I guess. And Leakey wanted me because I was a female and because I had an unbiased mind. And the, the um, when I got to Tanzania, it was just becoming independent. So there was resentment towards the white males who dominated the country for so long. But a white female, oh, they wanted to help me. So I didn't have this... Um, And, you know, when when there were these male scientists, when I discovered tool using, saying, well, why should we believe her? She's just a girl. She doesn't have a degree. Uh, She's only got money from the geographic because she's got nice legs. Um, All I cared about was getting back and learning about the chimps. I didn't even want to be a scientist. It was Leakey who made me do the degree. And I'm really glad he did, by the way. I loved learning how to think in, you know, in in a scientific, logical way. I've enjoyed that so much. It's helped me in, in everything, actually.
1: On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WorkingSmarter.ai.
0: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until
1: the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m.
0: The office was shocked.
1: <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime.
0: Record and present anytime
2: with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
0: Hi, and welcome back to my conversation with Jane Goodall. There's a Max Planck saying that—it uh, gets paraphrased as saying that science progresses one funeral at a time. Um, and I think you've you've known many more scientists than I have who just were unwilling to let go of their pet theories. Uh, and this is clearly not a problem for you. It almost seems like you're immune to confirmation bias. And, you know, to go and discover not only that chimps use tools, but even make their own. Um, I, I'm interested in how you, I guess, kept such an open mind— to discover things that flew in the face of what everyone thought
2: was true. Because I hadn't been to college. <laughs> Nobody taught me. <laughs> I mean, that's what Leakey told me later, he said, I, I wanted somebody with an unbiased mind. He said, I don't like the way the reductionist thinking of uh, scientists today. So, he, And he also felt that a, a woman might be more patient and hmm. in the field. So I was really lucky in those ways, you know.
0: I think so too, although it, it poses challenges then over time as you get a PhD and you become more steeped in the assumptions of the field. There's um, there's a term in my world called cognitive entrenchment uh, where experts start to take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned. Uh, how have you prevented yourself from getting entrenched over the years?
2: I suppose it's my personality. I don't know. Also, remember, I never got into the academic you know, I was—I I never had a, an academic position in the university. I just got that PhD as quickly as I could and went back and learned from the chimps. And when you're out there learning from the chimps, you can't get entrenched because you're continually getting surprises. And uh, you know, and the other animals too that I've watched—it's—you it's, can't get entrenched when you're really absolutely. Keen on understanding another species,
0: so I guess going out into the wild then forces you to <laughs> to juxtapose what you think you know against what is.
2: Yes, and in a way, traveling around the world in all these different countries and meeting all these different cultures, it's kind of the same. You can't get entrenched in one culture when you meet people behaving in a completely different way, maybe from the same motives. <laughs> but, you, you know, your your mind is continually uh forced to expand and grow, and I've been really lucky in that way. And then, you know, you're also going back to this chimp-human thing, and you touched upon it already, but um, what, be, because we're so like them, more like them than any other living creature, it helps you understand how we're different. And I think the main difference is... The fact that at some point in our evolution, we developed this way of speaking with words so that we can teach children about things that aren't present. Uh, we can gather together and discuss something, people from different views. And that is what I believe led to this explosive development of our intellect, which is what really does make us different. So animals are way, way, way more intelligent than many people used to think, and some people still won't believe it. But, you know, if you think of a species that designs a rocket that goes to Mars from which a little robot creeps to take photographs. (laughs) People who think about and discover stars that are billions of light miles away. I mean, my goodness. And think Galileo back then in those days, think what and think of Linnaeus. I mean, the human Intellect has been extraordinary.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's 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 hard to it's hard to disagree with <laughs> with with those those observations. Uh, so, a, a few things that I want to I want to make sure we cover. Um, I wanted to do a, a slightly shorter lightning round uh, where we we build a little color around maybe the sides of of you that that most people don't get to see. Uh, so the the first question I had for you on that is: if you weren't a primatologist, what other jobs might you have wanted?
2: Uh, Well, anything to be out in nature. Before that really crystallized, I wanted to be Poet Laureate. I used to read so much poetry and write books.
0: What is the worst career advice you've ever received?
2: Um, Well, I suppose it was what the professors told me when I went to Cambridge. that I'd done everything wrong.
0: And it turns out they were the ones who'd done everything wrong, didn't it? <laughs> uh, the, oh, that, that's poetic justice to your, to your poetry.
2: Yeah, uh, right.
0: Your poetry passion. And then uh, I was talking with my sister the other day, and she said that if she could have dinner with anyone on Earth, you'd be at her table, which, of course, made me wonder who would be at your table. Uh, are there people you would most like to sit down with and learn from that you've never met or that you've only had limited interaction with?
2: Um people who are alive today, yes, uh, I would really like to sit down privately and have dinner with the Pope.
0: What would you talk about?
2: Well, it would depend. I mean, I don't really talk to people about anything until I've sussed them out, as it were, and, and found a piece of common ground and something that you can share, and then let the conversation run. But... He's been so outspoken and amazing about the environment. And, you know, he actually said, just because we can breed like rabbits doesn't mean we should, Uh, which for a pope is quite extraordinary to say something like that. And I think he's done a lot to persuade Catholics to take more concern for the environment.
0: Uh, it's 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 funny to hear you, you say that because I think you paved the way for the kind of entrepreneurial activism uh, that that he's done in his work. That goes to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is, as you moved into activism, uh, both you know, to protect animals and now the environment and our planet, um, I think you've seen as I have, a lot of ineffective strategies for trying to get people to care uh, about non-humans and I'm curious about what you've learned from all this activism. Um, what is it that gets people to care about animals? What is it that gets them to step up and and take care of the planet?
2: When I first realized that chimpanzees were disappearing and the forests were were being um, destroyed in nineteen eighty six I felt that I had to learn more about it. so i went I got a bit of money and got to. I think it was six different range states to learn about what was happening to the chimps. And at the same time, I was learning about the plight faced by so many African people living in and around chimp habitat, you know, the crippling poverty, the lack of health and education, the degradation of land, growing human populations, and flying over Gombe that had been part of this equatorial forest belt when I began, by 1990, it was just a tiny island, of forest surrounded by completely bare hills. And that's when it hit me. If we don't help the people to find ways of making a living without destroying the environment, we can't even try to save the chimps. And so because we began this program, Take Care or Takari, which is very holistic, uh, the, the people trust us now. and They've come to understand that protecting the environment is for their own future. They need the forest for clean air and clean water to prevent soil erosion and, and control rainfall and the climate. And so they've become our partners in they help us conserve the environment. And we teach about the animals in our youth program. And they're all helping to protect the animals and tell people about the animals. And, Again, you can't. It's not a blanket answer I could give you about how do you persuade people to step up uh, and care about animals. But I do it by telling stories, and different stories depending on who you're talking to.
0: Yeah, it re- it reminds me of a, a campaign the Environmental Defense Fund ran years ago, uh, which I, th- I think was their most successful campaign ever, which was just a, a picture of a polar bear on a melting ice cap.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: We've got a whole audience of listeners who are trying to figure out how to get through the next year or so of the pandemic and given given all the difficult conditions you've endured throughout your your life and your career, I'm wondering what advice you have for for anybody who's just trying to figure out how to stay how to stay on track, how to avoid burning out, uh, how to deal with all the uncertainty we're facing what what guidance do you have?
2: Well, you know there again, how can you give a, a blanket g- a guidance because the people are so different. I mean, some of them are ones who've lost their jobs. Some of them, like in Africa and India, you know, they live by selling things, and what they get selling their little bits and pieces is how they eat in the evening and provide food for their children. So, advice that you were giving to them would be totally different from somebody sitting in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, with his pots of money and ability to communicate with people around the world and think of new ways of making more money or making more inventions depending on the person so what do you say i mean you have to hope that people have hope i mean without hope you give up don't you if you hope for a better future so maybe for whatever jobs been lost you can sort of talk to that person and say well you know like if we can create a new green economy um there'll be Hundreds and thousands of jobs to do with, you know, solar and wind and all these other technologies that could be developed to provide jobs for people.
0: Yes, Jane. Have there ever been times when you've lost hope, and and if so, where have you turned to to rediscover it?
2: Well, I've never totally lost it. I, you can't look around the world today, um, really look around and see what's happening and really read about what's happening to the environment and to society and not feel depressed. You, you can't I defy anybody with any kind of intelligence not to feel depressed. But then when, when I get those feelings, something pops up in me. to say, well, you know, I'm not going to be browbeaten by this. I just won't. I suppose I was a born fighter. Maybe it's my genes. I had an amazing grandmother, an incredible mother, I I think that's such
0: a heartening message to say, I will not be browbeaten by this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't let the Trumps and Bolsonaros browbeat me into saying, well, they've done so much damage, there's nothing I can do, so I'm not going to do anything. That's the danger. People do nothing because they feel powerless and helpless and hopeless. And that's why I started the youth program, Roots and Shoots, because so many young people telling me that they felt Uh, depressed or angry or mostly apathetic because we've compromised their future and there's nothing they can do about it and so yes we have compromised their future we've been stealing it we're still stealing it today actually but I believe firmly that we have a window of time and if we get together and put our brains together that we can um at least heal some of the harm that we've inflicted and slow down climate change. But we've got to do it now, and that's why I was traveling all over the place, and that's why I'm trying to create this virtual Jane, who actually reaches far more people.
0: Well, I I love virtual Jane. <laughs> it certainly seems it seems more efficient and convenient for you. Uh, although I do I do hope you can get back out in nature in the near future. Jane, it's, it's been such an honor to speak with you. Um, you've you've done so much for humanity, for animals, for the planet. I'm um, just really grateful that you're willing to take the time to do this. So thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you too. And I think everybody listening should remember that every single day we live, each one of us makes an impact on the planet, and we have a choice as to what kind of impact we make that's a really important thing to remember.
0: Scientists, conservationist, activist, Jane Goodall now has a new title to add to her collection, Podcaster. Her new show is called The Jane Goodall Hopecast. It's currently available in English, but I'm hoping for a chimpanzee version soon. Taken For Granted is a member of the TED Audio Collective. The show is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Jessica Glazer, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Banban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Constanza Gallardo. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Original music by Hans Dale Sue and Allison Leighton Brown. And huge gratitude to Melly Shifter for introducing me to Jane.